Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm Scott Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and get it today. You won't be sorry. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you as always for your interest and support. And you've tuned in for another good one because my guest today is guitarist, singer, producer Sheldon Reynolds, who for 14 years was a member of the legendary funk R&B band Earth, Wind & Fire, and among his other credits was also a member of the Commodores and funk group Sun. Reynolds was nominated for a Grammy for Earth, Wind & Fire's single Sunday morning. Also to his credits is his work as writer and performer with well-known artists such as Millie Jackson, Chicago, Kirk Whalen, The Pointer Sisters, Stephanie Mills, Paula Abdul, and Brian uh, Culbertson. He also produced the all-star Jimi Hendrix tribute album, Power of Soul, and was once married to Hendrix's adopted sister, Jeannie Hendrix. In addition, Reynolds contributed to the soundtrack for the movie Glory, theme music for the TV shows Who's the Boss and Chicago Hope, and wrote music and appeared in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He is also an avid photographer and a contributing editor to Astronomy Magazine. R&B, funk, jazz, rock, film, TV, and the stars. Sheldon Reynolds is a musical renaissance man. I'm so glad to have him with us today. Sheldon, how's it going? Hey, man, are you sure you're talking about me? I was pretty busy there, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to be here and glad we got the technical bugs worked out so I could actually talk through this thing. Well, you know, we have to do it. We have to do it. That's right. I'm glad to be here and thank you for having me. Yeah, and I know we we're talking a little bit beforehand and coming from LA and you're dealing with all those those fires. So I'm glad you're safe and sound and and as free from that as you can be. Yeah, it's, it's, there's only two ways to go. Either in, go up the tent and try to get out of here or go to the ocean and swim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. It's, it's just the air is really bad out here now because there's all that, all there's so many fires in so many areas that the wind is just blowing the smoke everywhere. So uh, anybody who is you know, out here, I just say stay inside for a day or two until it calms down because it's not good for the respiratory system. Yeah, well, we have prayers for those out there that have been affected and wishing a, a quick extinguishing to all this craziness. Um, big fan, been following you since, you know, I, I became aware of you, frankly, with Earth, One and Fire, but then going back and seeing the other groups that you played with as well, wow, pretty impressive. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that. But we're going to start out at the beginning, if that's okay with you, not the very beginning, but a ways back and ask you, uh, Sheldon, how did you first get into music? How did you first gravitate towards the guitar? Uh, I was about six years old when I got my first guitar. I had begged my mom I wanted to play guitar and be a, a rock star, as I told her. And I wanted to be the, the sixth Jackson. Because <laughs> the Jackson 5 had just come out at that time. And I was already a fan of B.B. King and you know groups around that era. And I just wanted to be the wanted to be Tito's, you know, backup guitar player or whatever. And this and, was in uh, this was in Ohio, Sheldon. Yeah, Cincinnati. So that kind of got it started, and then I, mean, I started seeing Sly and the Family Stone and Jimi Hendrix, and my first concert was Aretha Franklin. That 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 did it for me. 
And ironically, I my second concert was at Jackson's, but there was another group that opened up for them, and it was the Commodores. Was that when they just had Machine Gun out in their first album? Yeah. So it was kind of, I had no idea, of course, at that time, but I thought they were really good. And I was like, man, those guys are good. I don't know who they were, but they were really good. And so how'd you uh, learn the guitar? Were you self-taught? Did you have lessons? Pretty much self-taught. And I had, I did have lessons, but it was pretty much self-taught at first. And um, I kind of thank God for that because most of the gigs that I was ever hired for demanded you had a great ear. And they they weren't too much so much strict about if you could read or not. Although it was a good thing to know it, but most of the time it was using your your natural skills of hearing. And I remember coming up to the one of the Commodores when I first joined, and I said, "Are there any charts?" And they looked back at me like I was an alien or something. They were like, "Are you crazy? Don't you have your ears, boy?" <laughs> So I, I, you know, most of the stuff I dealt with demanded that I use what God gave me and said, if you can hear it, play it. Now well, you're fortunate to have had that that gift. So, um, when did you first start, you know, getting in a band or playing with other people? That was probably like junior high school. My first band. We, we got together and, and won uh, first and second place in the talent show. And they got me my second guitar. My, I had my mom had promised me if we won. She was, she was thinking it was impossible, but she, was, she said if we won first and second place, she'd buy me another guitar, which was a white strap. And uh, we actually did win first and second. I came up to her and I reminded her and she was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but she ended up being our manager, so that was cool. Make sure we got paid on time. <laughs> and kept you in line, I'm sure. Yeah, I couldn't get with any, any shenanigans for sure. That wasn't <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> so how many pieces to the band were there? And um, what what was the next step after that? That, uh, that band was probably about eight of us, I guess, with singers. And then after that, I went to another band that was from the high school as well. And they were called Blue Atmosphere. And that made comprised of some guys from high school and some guys I met in the city. And then we were all really good friends and just, you know, trying trying to be earth, wind and fire. <laughs> so a set list might've been, uh, was it all covers or did you try any originals? We had, uh, uh, one original called Shades of Reality, which I actually re-recorded about 10 years ago, just as a demo that I have still. And uh, we started playing that, and that actually won the second place in the talent show. And we kept playing it with the, when, within the two or three bands I was in, we, was, we still played that song. It was more like, if you remember Frankenstein? Take your winner. It was kind of similar to that. So that kind of went over. We played together, and the people thought that was a part of Frankenstein. <laughs> so you're still in uh, Cincinnati at this point? Yeah. Uh, now, I know that's such a fertile musical area, and uh, particularly 
in recent years, Dayton's really gotten a lot of notoriety for being sort of a hotbed of funk. And Cincinnati mm-hmm. with Bootsy and, and those guys also well-known for, for music and particularly funk. So what was your experience like in that environment? Oh, it was fun because it was so much healthy competition, you know, with bands. You know, Bootsy was from Cincinnati where I was, but a lot of the groups like Sun and Lakeside, Ohio Players, they were all Dayton-based. And, you know, we'd all be, you know, the Cincinnati bands against the Dayton bands. And, you know, and then we'd end up, end up intermingling, you know, bands from different parts of the state. So it really helped to make, make you, I mean, a better player because you had great guys all around you. Everybody in the, in the state could play, <laughs> you know. And, and quiet as it's kept. James Brown spent more time in Cincinnati than he did in, in, in Macon, Georgia, or wherever he was from, because he was he was recording at King Records there all the time, and he would hire cats from around the city that, that would play. And I was I was too young at the time, but a lot of the guys that I looked up to would play in his recording sessions, and you know, and it was just like the, the, the foundation for learning how to play funk, and you know funk rock and all that stuff was coming from that area, you know, really, really heavily. Yeah, like you said, I mean, it seems like, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the clerk at the store and the postal worker and everybody in that area can almost pick up something and play. It seems like such a musical area. So I'm imagining like at family gatherings, there must have been music. I mean, was there just music pro- proliferating everywhere in your in your life? Oh yeah, my in my household, my mom was a piano player and a singer, and she she wanted to be in the music herself. And in, and in the long run, she ended up having some songs that I wrote with her that got on Commodores and Earthwind and Fire Records. So back in that day, when we were when I was growing up, it would be an impromptu party at any minute. You know, it was just it, it didn't it didn't demand a an invitation. You just knew we'd four o'clock be there or six o'clock be there, and we'll have some food and listen to all of the greats, you know, and people just showed up, you know, and we would, we'd have a good time, you know. So did you end up seeing a lot of those local acts? Like you mentioned the Ohio players and um, Lakeside and those guys, did you see, see them also and, and take anything away from that? Uh, yeah, a lot of that, because they would play around this, the, the two cities a lot. And then when I ended up in the group Sun, I would be in Dayton a lot, so I'd see him all the time. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that. So Sun, um, I don't have the records. I think that you were on there, but I will just hold this up because it's the group. Um, this is her first three records. I think you came on maybe for their fourth. But um, Sun was, you know, a band that um, had really good success on on black radio, but never really crossed over. But what a great funk band, but also it kind of seemed like it served as sort of a, a farm system or something for musicians to go to other bands in an area. So can you can you talk about that and, and how you got involved with them? It's funny, I'm either getting senile or something, because I can't remember how I actually got involved, but I was I think I was playing with somebody in Dayton, Ohio, and they, one of the guys saw me and, and recommended I come. You know, I think I think his name was Sonny Tauber, who was from Cincinnati. 
And I think he recommended me and I ended up coming to their rehearsal and auditioning and got the gig. But um, at that time, I was back and forth playing with a guy named Wilbert Longmire, who was a jazz oh, yeah. artist out of Cincinnati. Jazz guy. He was like my, he was like my, my, he was like my big brother, you know. And uh, keep him in your prayers. I heard he's been sick lately, so keep him in your prayers. Mm-hmm. But um, I ended up in Sun, and um, a lot of, like I said, there was so much talent coming out of that area of the state that any one of the guys in, in on any instrument could end up being playing with somebody famous because they were just that good. And it made you keep your chops up because if you slip, there'd be another guy standing in your position the next day. Yeah, there was so much great talent out of that area of the country. It's like we were like we were the best kept secret on the planet. You know, it was, it was too cold to come there and too hot in the summer. But it was like a lot of guys that spent a lot of time in woodshedding and they, they really were good on their instruments. So you had to be either intimidated or inspired by the talent around you because everybody was good at that time. And there's a lot of guys that could have ended up doing what I did and and even better. You know, I mean, I, I felt humble when, with the success that I was able to, to achieve. You know, I thank God all the time because there were so many guys out of, out of my area who were qualified. Uh, Sheldon, I, who, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say we had a guy that I grew up in high school with. I, I don't know what ever happened to him, but. He was he was more he was more Jimi Hendrix than Jimi Hendrix, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he was he was absolutely magical. His name was Spencer Myrie, a truly unsung hero. That's the thing. There's so many of the fantastic players that very few people get to hear. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, nowadays with the internet, I think some of those guys at least have a chance to get some exposure by just throwing something, you know on YouTube or something where they're playing. Yeah, that's true. It definitely helps. The Sheldon, in Sun, Byron Bird was the leader of the group, right? So mm-hmm. can you talk about your role in that band and what it was like working with him and, you know, what you did in, in, in studio versus, you know, live performance? Um, I wouldn't, I would say Byron is a brilliant man. I mean, he's like a guy who could probably work for NASA and everything else. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. He, he I mean, the, the sad thing with Son is that there was so much time fighting about money, not so much from my generation, but the guys that came before me. There was so much residue of, of the, where they were all fighting over who got paid for what and who didn't get paid and all that. It distracted from the music and the potential that the group had. And that, that was the only negative thing. It was like if they had just made sure everybody was cool with their money, then it would have never, it probably would have went a lot further. Because the talent, he knew how to get the talent. He put together some great cats. And it just ended up with a lot of guys that were disgruntled from, you know, the, the business side. So what was the process like though when you went in to create some of those jams that were on those records? Yeah, it was pretty much in the rehearsal. We had a big rehearsal hall in the rehearsal, we would jam like for hours, you know, and and then we would re- end up recording a lot of it. And then when we did go to the main studio, 
we just basically be you know cleaning up a lot of stuff. But most of it came from the you know the, the, either the sound check or the rehearsal, and then perfected in the studio. I'm guessing though, when you're with Sun, that you probably were on some bills with a lot of other great acts. Am I right about that? We toured with Heat Wave and um, who else? Heat Wave, sometimes Lakeside. Uh, it was a lot of those those funk tours where there was a lot of groups on the show at one time. Cameo. And, uh, I think we did do some stuff with Cameo. I know I played with them. I know we did some shows, but I don't remember if it was the Commodores or the Sun. Slave, maybe? Yeah, that would have been definitely one of the groups. So we kind of uh, went past that, but before you were with Sun, I understand you you played with Millie Jackson too, is that right? Oh yeah, that was my first so-called famous artist tour. It was Millie Jackson. I was 17 and green as a tree. <laughs> and Millie, Millie was as, as raw as an old serious tree. <laughs> and uh, quite an education at 17 years old and playing juke joints and uh, she turned out to be like mother love kind of person she was really cool but if you didn't know you think she was rough out but she was really a sweetheart but she just knew how to make her act sell you know and uh, a couple a couple of times I I, I I could tell some stories but I can't tell them on the radio it's too, they're too to 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 adult, <laughs> she was a she was a great education to know how to deal with with life. That's for sure. How did you come to uh, connect with her? The band leader in the band I was in, I think he had the contact, and he got a call from the promoter who was wanting to bring us to Georgia, and uh, open up for her and a couple of juke joints that were down there. And uh, we we drove and uh, the first the first one was uh, not so much her fault. Up to the Lagrange, Georgia, and getting seven bucks, seven dollars each for our work. And uh, she made sure that didn't happen again. What were those crowds like at those shows? Um, they were your classic. Juke joint crowd. I mean, if you didn't, if you played good, they yelled. If you didn't play good, they yelled. <laughs> so they were, you know, wasn't far from putting some chicken wire in front of you to protect you. It wasn't. It wasn't. That would have been been a good idea in some cases. <laughs> but the uh, the thing was that they were honest. You know, if you were if you were good, they'd let you know, and if you weren't good, they'd let you know it. And our, one of our first shows, uh, the drummer fell off the back of the drums and kicked his drums over as he was falling. So we were literally starting out on the, on, in a bad way when we counted off the first song and we couldn't even start it because the drums got kicked over by the drummer. <laughs> and we had to stop before we even got started and pick up his drums and cymbals fell everywhere. It was, it was quite a comedy act. <laughs> How how much of a spotlight did you get either with Millie Jackson or with Sun? You know, did you get time to solo and do your thing, or you kind of had to be rigid? Yeah, because I was kind of between being a guitar player and a singer, so I would get time to a little bit of both on on both ends. You know, 
And who who would you emulate as a singer? Who was your kind of you know? Um, I would say my favorite influences were Sly Stone, Maurice White. Um, grew up listening to a lot of Donny Hathaway when I was growing up. And I have a cousin who's out of Cincinnati as well, who ended up with the Spinners, and that was Felipe Wynn. Mm -hmm. And he was there, the guy who sang Sadie and Rubber Band Man, uh, One of a Kind, all those songs. Uh, he was a great inspiration as well. And um, I mean, there's so many, because there were so many great singers coming up. Aretha Franklin was my first concert and everybody loved Aretha when I was coming up. So that was that was a definite influence. Stevie Wonder, of course. But the guy named Maurice White was kind of like my hero. Never thought I'd end up working with him for most of my career. Yeah, so now did you connect first with uh, the Commodores or with Earth, Wind & Fire? Because there's definitely some overlap there, I believe. How, how did that work? Yeah, Commodores was, Commodores actually called me in Cincinnati. I was still back in Cincinnati from after touring my last tour with Sun. I was in, I went back to Cincinnati and, and uh, took a trip to LA to try to hustle my, you know, my songs and my, my you know, my, whatever I had to, to offer. And then about a month later, I got a call from the Commodores. They wanted to hire me. And I ended up flying to LA, and that was when I when I left Cincinnati for good to you know join the Commodores, and I spent four years with them. During that time, I met Maurice. I started working in the studio with him during that time, and eventually, he asked me if I wanted to join a re a re uh, surgeon of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, we're gonna please putting the group back together, and Al McKay didn't want to come back, so I left the door open, and I ran as fast as I could. <laughs> All right, before we talk about uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, let's talk about the commoners a little bit. So um, Lionel Richie was long gone by then. Um, and J.D. Nicholas was a singer, right? He came in. I, I, J.D. came about a year after I was there. I came in right when Lionel had left. And then uh, about a year later, maybe a little less than a year later, J.D. came in. And they did night shift, and that's when everything started touring really heavily again. And, so, uh, so are you actually on night shift? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually singing in the in the, the background. Oh. And uh, we 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 have we have a funny story with that because we when we first sang it, it was Saida Garrett who put the choir together, the, the singers together. And there was a lot of great singers that I was meeting for the first time that day, and we had a good time singing it. But our first take, and I can't say the word, but if you can think of messing up night shift, <laughs> what it might sound like, yeah. that's what we sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to redo it because it was going to come out pretty bad. <laughs> so the producer, Dennis Lambert, said, can you guys like sing it again and, and just one of you pronounce the T or the F? Yeah, the F. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was it could have it could have been a big blooper to come out of there. <laughs> it might have been uh, better for like a Pepto-Bismol commercial or something like that than a big hit single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So how'd you feel when that became such a hit and you were part of that? It was crazy because that was, that was the first hit song I'd ever been involved with. I mean, I just sang on it, but, you know, I ended up writing a lot of songs for future records for them, with them. But that was the first song I'd ever come on. And it, I mean, it got a Grammy nomination. On, I even have it on my wall upstairs. They got a Grammy nomination and everything. So it was pretty, it was pretty much pinch your, you know, I had to pinch myself to, to realize I had actually been involved with something like that. Yeah, I mean, what a what a huge leap, because um, Sun was kind of, their fortunes were kind of fading, and they were kind of a niche, and then you get this big pop smash song, so that's a big change. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like being with the Commodores then, though, because, you know, did they, I mean, they had a hit with Night Shift, but did they feel kind of snake bit, or did, did you sense there was any animosity with Lionel Richie or anything like that or oh yeah yeah there was there was definitely there was definitely some some tension I mean for us new guys it was kind of like some kind of fun some kind of weird funny movie because the first day of rehearsal when I got the gig we were rehearsing in a place called SIR which is where all the groups rehearsed at in LA and we come in and in one room we're rehearsing and we come outside to the lobby and down the hall, around the corner, you could hear the same songs playing again. And that was Lionel Richie's down there rehearsing. Yeah, wow. And it was like the same building, two different, two different acts in the same building, you know, and they weren't speaking to each other at that time because there was a lot of animosity going on. And we had to make sure we stayed away from Lionel Richie because even though we wanted to meet him because we were starstruck, we didn't want to get fired and sent back to Cincinnati or wherever the other guys were from. So it it, uh, it was kind of awkward. There was a lot of, because it was like a family. You know, they were like brothers who grew up together. Yeah. And it wasn't just business. It wasn't just business. They had actually created a, a legacy together. And then now they were falling apart as, as in a relationship. And uh, it was it was it was interesting to watch. So with the Commodores. Um... Did you get to play like all of their their great funk songs too when you would do shows with them? You know, Slippery When Wet and Fancy Dancer and that kind of stuff too, or was it more of the uh, newer stuff? Oh yeah, we did all the all of the all of the hits. Most of the time, we did mostly the stuff that they are were known for, which was you know like people related to the Commodores as the the funk act, with Lionel Richie as the pop act. So we were we were kind of when he left. It was kind of like we were, we we had we as a band had more fun because we were playing the, the funk stuff. It was it was kind of strange to hear three times a lady with no Lionel Richie. You know, that was kind of strange, strange to be in the building. So, um, the Commodores. So, what were those guys like? I mean, Walter Clyde Orange and um, what what were they like to work with? They were like having some big brothers that were teaching us the way. I mean, they were all very experienced and very down to earth, you know, they were like, you know, people always give me a lot of accolade after being with Earth, Wind and Fire. But I, often, I have to give the Commodores just as, just as much respect. They, they gave me a shot to get out of Cincinnati, to, you know, to start a, a real success career and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think sometimes they get, in, in my story, they get lost in the mix a little bit. And I don't, I don't think that's fair because though my heart was with Earth, Wind and Fire, my respect as well as with the Commodores, equally.
Yeah, so you basically replaced uh, Thomas McClary, right, in, in the band. So did you kind of replicate his parts or did you bring your own thing to it? When I when I first joined, he was still there. For the first year or two, he was still there. Oh. So I was like, because they had always had two guitar players playing in the, in the old days. And uh, so it was kind of like I was playing the other guys, you know, the other guitar players' parts. But when Tommy left, I had to sort of create the, which kind of helped me when I joined Earth on Fire. I had to create the, 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 the simulated two guitar player thing with one guy. So, I, you know, I might be playing part of what Tommy played and part of what the other guy played in the same, same you know, song. Mm -hmm. It's probably why I got Parkinson's now. It drove me crazy. <laughs> 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 but it, it, it eventually worked really well when I got with EWF because I had to be Rhythm King like Al McKay and then Johnny Graham at the same time. Yeah. All right. So any other uh, thoughts or memories about the Commodores that you want to share? We should move on to Earth, Wind & Fire. Well, just that, you know, those guys are, you know, they created a, what was, I call a legacy that's, that's unforgettable as well. And uh, a lot of times we get focused on one group and think they're the, they're the only thing that did it. But Commodores, you know, like I said, I first saw them at the Jackson show when I was a kid or a teenager. And they had a long, long, wonderful run as far as success. And they deserve just as much respect as anybody. Well, I mean, some people may not realize unless they were around then, but I mean, in the mid to late 70s, the Commodores completely rivaled Earth, Wind & Fire as the top mm -hmm. R&B band. You know, it was the Commodores, Earth, Wind & Fire, to some degree, Ohio players, and P-Funk pretty much, I would say were the four biggest funk R&B bands. And the Commodores were every bit as popular and big as Earth, Wind & Fire at that time uh, until Lionel right. Richie left pretty much. So, I mean, they were substantial. Funny thing is, is when later on, when I met Barry Gordy, he came to one of our shows in Earth, Wind & Fire. And he came backstage, he had never seen Earth, Wind & Fire until that day. But he, he said he assigned the Commodores as his answer to Earth, Wind & Fire, but he never came to see us. I understand why he got so respected now. So, I mean, you know, he he, he definitely let, let it be known he had got the Commodores to the answer to Earth, Wind & Fire. There you go. So um, you mentioned earlier about um, you got in touch with Maurice White, and he had kind of um, pursued you. Is that what you had said before? Well, it was it was kind of a it's a long story, but it was kind of a, a magical story. I had been with the Commodores for a couple of years, and I was living in L.A. and kind of basically sleeping on some guy's floor who was was one of the crew guys because I didn't have anywhere to stay, but I was trying to stay out in L.A. so I could try to hustle my songwriting and producing and whatever else I could get into. Because a lot of times when we weren't touring, I wouldn't, you know, there was nothing to do. So I'm just kind of back to square one. And I ended up calling Maurice's office in West LA. And I, I lucked up and got his sister on the phone who, who ran his business. And I ended up going and getting on the bus and taking a, some tapes down to her office and giving them to her. The next day, 
I I was I was told the Commodores were recording in the studio in uh, Burton and Silver Lake area, part of L.A. And I went up there. And when I got there, there was this this burgundy red Porsche sitting in the driveway at another studio that was connected to the one we were in with the Commodores. And I was like, man, it's a bad car. Whose car is that? And somebody said, that's Maurice White's car. He's here producing Barbara Streisand. And I was like, what? So I called his sister at her office and I said, look, I'm at a studio that I guess Maurice is in another building, another part of the building somewhere. And she said, stay right there. And a few minutes later, he came walking out and that's how we met. So do you have any idea what's the first thing you said? <laughs> Pretty much. After, after you bowed down and kissed his, his ring finger, what did you do? What did you say? <laughs> I was like, I think I was I was so honored and yet so starstruck like I could hardly, you know, say anything. But we hit it off really well because we came from the same sort of space, you know. Of, of not, I mean, it was it was like we were brothers all right off the bat, and um, I ended up in the studio with him. Like you know, I'm a, I got to actually got to rewind because the first. When I before I actually met him, it was it was a, it was a couple of days went between that. I actually called his sister and I went down and took the tapes, and and then a, a day later, Maurice called my mother's house because I had put my mother's number on the tapes. But I didn't have a phone. There was no cell phone thing back then, and I didn't have a phone other than the guy's house where I was staying at. Maurice called and my mom picked up the phone and he said, this is Maurice White trying to reach Sheldon Reynolds. And she said, I know who you are. I'll find him, don't worry. <laughs> so she she found me and I ended up going to a phone booth and calling him back. So that's where it started. Then the next day after that is when I started the car at the studio. So it was like a three days, three days in a row where I was just completely Maurice White <laughs> in your city. And it's, so this is, I think, probably around 1985, 1986, right? I think it was 86. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was 86. And was he already working on his solo album at that point, or where was he in that? He was he was about to start on it at the time, yeah. And so you got right in and you started contributing to that, right? Yeah, I started singing with him, and I, we actually did a song that didn't make the record, but we... We did this thing called Collage, which I still have a copy of. It was like a collection of all the big hits from the 60s and 70s. And we did an Earth, Wind and Fire twist to it. And it, 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 it became a publishing nightmare, so we couldn't release it. Yeah. There was like 20 different songs in there. So there was like too many publishers were fighting. So we were like, okay, forget it. How would you describe Maurice White as a, as a person, as a man, as a musician? He's what I call a true leader. I mean, you know, he, I mean, nobody's perfect and without mistakes and all that, but he was like a true band leader who did it for the love of the music for first. Then hopefully the success would come with it, of course. But he loved to, to make, a, make an audience happy and make that band reach out to do something unique. Like if I play 
if I came in the studio and he said, okay, let me hear a song, and I might go, dun, 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 he said, now give me the counter to that. I'd have to sit and think about it because I was like, I had, I had put out what I thought was, you know, my creativity. So I would go, dun, 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 you know. So, the, the, so you created the two guitar players, sort of back and forth conversation. And inspire you to, to reach out and to give because he wouldn't call you for something that you weren't qualified for he wouldn't put you in that position he'd call you for what you were what your talent was that was his, that was his biggest gift because he knew how to put the right people in the right place was he very uh, talkative or how did he communicate he was he was he was pretty quiet but he when he had something to say he, he'd, he'd say it he was very frank about what he felt in private and but he was he had an aura i always called him maurice white aura he had a, a he kind of always seemed to glow with some kind of like great wisdom or something you know he just had a, he was a, it's like a like a different kind of cat you know but he was like um i miss him like crazy because he was he was always good to talk to him because he would always put things in perspective you know keep you grounded you know and he always used to tell me he always used to say to me, he said, you, you keep us, you keep us knowing where home is. Cause we go out there and do all these big changes, you know, da, 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 da. And, and he, and, and when we finished, we come out of there, Sheldon sitting there going, dun, 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 dun. here's home when you get tired of all them big changes, <laughs> you know, but he was, uh, he had a, he had a, a commanding quiet spirit, but but when he got on stage, it was like he, he just opened up. He was electrifying. Yeah, I, I saw them a couple of times. I never got to meet Maurice, though. Um, mm -hmm. So when you connected with uh, Maurice initially, did he already have um, a plan in place or was he already in the process of reuniting Earth, Wind & Fire? Or did that come after you got with him? Came after. Yeah, he did his whole solo record thing first and then then it became about a, it took about a year and a year and a half of time and then um after that he he called me one night and said he was wanting to put the group back together and he asked me if i wanted to be part of it and i was like oh, let me think about it i thought about it of course <laughs> <laughs> so it had been i think um i want to say maybe was it five years or four years? They did, I think, um, I don't know, Faces at two records, that was the last one, and then came back with Touch the World in 87. Um, mm -hmm. But it had been a while. Do you know what inspired him to to come back as Earth, Wind & Fire? I think he missed it. I mean, you know, it was this bread and butter, plus it was it was like, once, you, once you've experienced Earth, Wind & Fire in terms of like the performance and the the level of emotions and spirit that comes down at one of our, at one of our concerts, you don't want to never not do it. Even if you can, even if the band is not getting along, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just that when you, when that audience is there and they, they and their spirits are touched, there's a different kind of effect than just star time. It's not just egos and 
look, we're, look, we're famous. It's, it's not about that. It's, it's about that spirit. You're touching those spirits out there. You're giving people who have all sorts of problems as we do today. You're giving them two hours or three hours of just absolute spiritual joy. And that's, that's I think he probably was missing that because I know I miss it now. And also the amazing stage presentations that they would do, um, you know. Yeah. Um, what were um, what was it like being with some of the other guys in the band? What was Verdine like? What was uh, Philip like? Philip was pretty much to himself. He was, he was pretty quiet. But they all were like filled with so many stories of wisdoms and stuff. And Verdine especially was like the the we call him the fire. And we could we could come in there with our back hurting, legs hurting, headache, toothache, whatever. And he he'd be like, "Come on, here we go, let's go, let's go. We gotta get it, pep it up, pep it up. Let's get it, let's get it." You know, even if he was hurting, you wouldn't know it. And if if he was tired, you wouldn't know it. He's the only person I know could drink coffee at two in the morning and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, coffee put him to sleep. <laughs> You know, so, but Ralph and Ralph and I used to sit and talk all the time. And, and when we had the Northridge earthquake, he lived he lived near me, and we ended up staying in this in our my mom's house for a couple of days when it all got crazy out there. And his family and all that, and they were all real real good people. And uh, quite as it's kept, people don't know too much about Andrew Woolfolk, was the original sax player. One of the original sex players, he's had a stroke about a year ago. He's been in the hospital ever since. He's hanging on by a thread, but he's getting better. So keep it off. But the one that got me that was was my was always my favorite was was actually two of them was Al McKay, who I replaced, and Larry Dunn, who became like my other brother. They were the, to me the the glue that made that sound happen along with Charles Stephanie and Maurice White. So, you know, there, there was, there was so many stories that we heard about the past that it was just like, it was like, it was like walking in some kind of wonderland, you know, we, we not, not necessarily boogie wonderland, but wonderland. Did, did you know some of those uh, tracks beforehand because you were a fan and maybe played them on your own? Oh yeah, you couldn't get out of my neighborhood without knowing everyone in fire. You get booed. Every every band every band had to be able to play some everyone in fire back in the day. And we we were one of my bands. We had a had a had a rhythm section that loved to we loved to mess with the horn section because we knew the horn parts were very hard to play. So we'd be up there playing them and we'd play getaway or something and you know but da 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 speed up the horn players will start turning turn around cussing us out we got a kick out of it because we knew they couldn't keep up from a from a guitar perspective though was there anything in particular in their catalog that you played that was more challenging than another all of it al mckay is one of the greatest rhythm players in the world for me and all of it was a challenge, and some of it I didn't, never did play right. But it, but I, I when I saw him and saw him play it, I was like, man, why didn't you tell me I was playing it wrong? <laughs> he's 
he just laughed. He said, "You did a good job." I said, "Yeah, but you got me. Let me go up fourteen years playing wrong the wrong way, man. I'm trying to represent what you did. I didn't. I didn't create this. You did it." So, but he was. He was. A lot of them, like, for me, it was challenging. Not so much because of the the guitar itself by itself, but I was also singing. And and dancing and doing all the choreography and showtime and all that and all on a ninety foot stage. So you know the the combination of all of it became very challenging. You know, but the love for it was greater than the challenge. So I was that's why I was able to try to pull it off as much as I did. <laughs>